you're an early stage Web3 founder, apply to our award-winning accelerator program, Basecamp at outlierventures.io slash Basecamp. We write your first $50,000 check and give you access to 200 mentors, including many of the leading Web3 founders, and a network of 1,000 of the world's leading investors and exchanges. We've helped over 30 startups from 15 countries from all around the world, raise $130 million in growth funding, and can help you fast-track product market fit and, where relevant, the launch of your token economy. So today, I'm really happy to welcome onto the show Dean Tribble, co-founder of Agoric. Welcome, Dean. Thank you for having me. So Agoric is a proof-of-stake chain with composable JavaScript smart contracts. We're going to talk about why that's important, powerful. Um, and there's several reasons why I've got you on your show. Firstly, we are an outlier, an investor. Uh, you didn't go through the accelerator, actually. I think our investment in you predated the accelerator. Um, uh, over, I don't know, what, three years or something ago now. That last time I saw you was in a London restaurant, which was at least three years ago. So Yeah, 2019. Oh, wow, there you go. It was clearly very memorable for you. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good thing or a bad thing. Um, uh, but, you know, you are a veteran developer with, you know, experience, technical experience spanning, well, the life of the internet, certainly the web. And I guess you could say you're a true uh, crypto OG. Um, and you've kind of always had this mission of onboarding, you know, the 99% of developers into the space. And Agoric's work is really making smart contracts easier and faster to build by leveraging JavaScript, something I know that um, other members of the team have been very deeply involved in. Um, Mark S. Miller being uh, mm -hmm. one of them, somebody we had on the show uh, maybe just under a year ago, one of the best podcast episodes we had. I mean, we we really kind of ran the gamut of all, all, all the important things about why generally blockchain is important, but um, also some of the innovations that underpin Agorican. I mean, that that mission is something that you've both been on for at least a decade. Is it not a couple of decades? Uh, more like three, but yes. Oh, wow. There you go. I remember it was... It was a significant period of time that Agoric was first founded uh, way back when, right? Well, there was the basic ideas. I worked on the first production smart contract back in 1989, um, and Mark did his open Agoric Open Systems papers back then. So it's been at least that long. Now, Agoric, the company, was founded in 2018, or well, formally in December of 2017. Um, so, so inspired by all the problems in some sense that people were having in ETH at the time, getting secure smart contracts and some friends of ours in the space, uh, Zuko from Zcash and so forth, you know, knew that we had a deep background in smart contracts, a deep background in security and thought we might uh, bring something to the table and, you know, organized a group and we talked about it and turns out we did. The A team assembled, right? That's um, right. So, and since then, you know, you guys have really been at the heart of the Cosmos ecosystem. And so, I also want to kind of get a get a update on on the state of play over there. I know you've been instrumental in the IBC rollout, um, and you've led several innovations on top, including Run Stablecoin, um, Kepler, which is the first IBC-enabled wallet for Cosmos, and um, over a year ago now, predating all the hype around NFTs, you actually rolled out some of the first NFT um, smart contract capabilities on Cosmos, um, but most importantly, in a way that could be leveraged 
by DeFi, something I think only now a lot of people are realizing is this relationship between NFTs and DeFi. Um, so lots of lots of first innovations there, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to kind of getting into the weeds with you on all of that. But maybe just before we get into it all, it would be great to kind of just get a potted history um, of your background so people know who they're listening to. Sure. So I'm Dean Tribble. I worked at Xerox Park many, many, many years ago, and then worked on the first production smart contract in 1989, as I mentioned. And since then, you know, we and was one of the early cypherpunks and thinking about how does how can you use crypto, how can you use smart contracts in a wide variety of real systems for B2B commerce and electronic commerce in the early days of the internet. And so I and my other founders here have done lots of large-scale distributed systems, large-scale commerce systems, and really bringing, um, you know, cutting-edge technology and disruptive technology to market. My previous gig to Agoric was a multi-billion dollar payment instrument in the U.S., and before that I was working on secure operating system research at uh, Microsoft. So a broad spectrum of stuff, but very much focused on how do we use software systems and computer systems to enable larger scale cooperation, to enable humans to have more leverage and cooperate with more people and enable more uh, interaction, business and commerce across the world of using digital assets and digital systems. Yeah, and I remember the end of the interview that I did with your co-founder, Mark, um, he, he kind of really brought that to life the, 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 you know, I mean, obviously I understand, I subscribe to the power of web three and smart contracts, but he really talked about, you know, the potential impact for trustless coordination and, um, allowing for, you know, frictionless, um, transactions and, and, and transfers to happen you know, globally, what that could mean for society. It was a really, really inspiring, um, interview. So. So let's kind of get into the weeds of what you've been building with Agoric and then also what we're seeing over at the Cosmos ecosystem. So could you just explain to us in layman's terms, or as, as, as layman as possible, <laughs> the kind of the innovations that you're doing there, like kind of maybe working our way up in the stack? Sure. So the most important innovation in Agoric, if you will, is the ability to program smart contracts in a hardened version of JavaScript. Scaling is hard, but there's lots of kinds of scaling that are just engineering, you know, transaction velocity, storage size, those sorts of things. The hardest and most important form of scaling we need to do in blockchain in order to have this stuff grow to take over more and more of the world is scaling the programmers that can program it. And so it's all about programmability, and that's why our focus is on how do we have something that's programmable by millions of developers, not thousands of developers, and that's programmable rapidly where they can put together stuff quickly and have the result uh, have a high chance of being safe. And so that's been a lot of our focus. The ingredients that go into that are, as I said, the hardened JavaScript, which is something we, that we've worked in the JavaScript Standards Committee to drive into JavaScript, the necessary components for that for years. We worked with the likes of Salesforce and Bloomberg and Node.js and so forth in developing that core technology. And indeed, the core of it is deployed into lots of Web2 systems out there in the world now. And we're also now working with, you know, uh, Cosm.js folks, Kepler, MetaMask, um, lots of Web2 folks, so that 
all of the JavaScript elements of the Web3 ecosystem are similarly running in this much safer, um, hardened JavaScript environment. And that's the heart of, of, of our ability to program smart contracts is something that's basically JavaScript and familiar to you know literally 10 million plus developers out there so that they're empowered to be able to build smart contracts for the next generation of DeFi, the next generation of uh, NFTs, and really the next generation of Web3 growing out into uh, mainstream use cases rather. Right. And you know, ultimately, the principles of Web3 aren't going to go mainstream until technologies are uh, developers are empowered to use its technologies. And as you say, you know, JavaScript uh, immediately out, out of the gate allows you to reach over 10 million developers. I don't know how that compares against the existing uh, blockchain developer pool, but I oh, electric, um Electric Capital estimated that there are at best 10,000 developers that can develop DeFi on Ethereum. So that's three orders of magnitude. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And certainly, you know, running the accelerator, I can feel that because one of the pinch points is constantly people are unable to find the right level of developer talent. And mm -hmm. what, what, what does exist is uh, incredibly expensive. So you mentioned um, safe a couple of times. So why is JavaScript safer than other languages? So there, there are a couple of ingredients there. As an accident of history, JavaScript was standardized in the ECMA Standards Committee, and the web bindings for it were standardized in WC3, or W3C, rather. And then the node bindings and the node foundation and so forth. And if you've never worked with committees, you can bet the, the way they defend their territory made for an amazingly strong, what's called user mode, system mode separation. The part of your operating system where applications run is in user mode and the kernel that has all the power is in the system mode. And the boundary between those is the, in some sense, the core of how you make uh, program interactions safe on a platform. And because of this accident of history, the user mode system mode separation in JavaScript is stronger than in literally any other language that I've encountered that wasn't designed specifically for this. So we've built the same kind of architecture in everything from Tickle to Java to C Sharp to OCaml. And, and JavaScript's ability to have this separation um, is actually better than those. Now, JavaScript starts out very malleable and adaptable to these various environments. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, people have this long perception of history that it, that, that it may be insecure is because things were very changeable. But, you know, one of the things that has the, the most important thing for this that Mark and others drove into the JavaScript standards is the ability to lock that down. And so the malleable JavaScript that you're used to, well, it turns out, most programs don't need that. They just program in the JavaScript that you read about in, in the textbooks. What this lockdown ability does is it makes it so that the JavaScript that you program in is the one you read about in the textbooks and not something modified randomly by a library to make it so that printing out a string also copies it and sends it to another country. And so now you've got a language where it's well-specified, it's very straightforward to manage what authorities a new program can run, and so forth. And that means that we really can have an environment that we download and run arbitrary JavaScript code in a box and it really can't get out and, and touch, talk to, or steal secrets from other parts of the system. So we get you know real encapsulated execution. Okay, so that's 
the first and most important point, that's the that's the hardened JavaScript. And that's what's you know in Salesforce App Exchange. It's what MetaMask is building the next generation extensible wallet with, and it's what our smart contracts uh, will use for being able to run arbitrary JavaScript on chain as the, as the way you program smart contracts. The second point, and this is where leverage and growth comes from, is, um, is what we call composability, right? It, it, it is, what, JavaScript was out there, people were programming with it, and they could do some pretty amazing UIs, but then new frameworks written in JavaScript for building user interfaces, for building applications in JavaScript came out, like React and Vue and a few others. And you saw, not quite overnight, but within months, the difference in the ability of developers to create applications was pretty astonishing. And it was because now you got a framework that let you produce components like a nav bar or a slideshow as a component that someone else could take and plug together with their components to produce a new application. So now instead of having to write every application from scratch, you got to build on the shoulders of other developers by picking up these components and using them in your applications. You could grab a slideshow and a Stripe integration component, put them together and launch a new art selling website, even if you personally weren't capable of writing that slideshow or figuring out how to build, how to interface to the, to the Stripe APIs. And Stripe being a library for getting um, uh, credit card processing, right? And so that leverage both meant every developer was much more effective because they could use more and more components so they could build sophisticated systems. And it also meant that, that, that they could learn it quickly, they could put them together quickly in it, and they all followed the rules. And so you got safer, more extensible systems, even though the programmers were not as expert as, as the developers that produced the systems 10 years ago. And the net result is a beginner with several months of training can do better than an expert used to be able to do because you have these frameworks that are really well designed for, in this case, in, in the case of user interfaces, well designed for handling mouse clicks and doing rendering and doing display and all those kinds of things. In the case of our smart contract framework, you have the most popular programming language and then a framework that's well designed for creating digital assets, you know, negotiating about them, trading them, being able to verify that you got what you wanted, charging fees, all those kinds of things that you want to do in a business, that you want to do in DeFi, or that you want to do in any of these other uh, verticals that, that crypto is starting to take off in. Right. And your smart contract framework is called Zoe. Yes. And so, you know, most people, when they talk about let's say Ethereum, they talk about its composability, they talk about money Lego, but really what you're talking about here is a level of composability, uh, like an order of magnitude more level of composability, right? Yeah, the, the original, we were talking about composability in 2018 and people would like scratch their head and look at us strangely, which we kind of expected. But then people discovered on Ethereum having a transaction that would use three different smart contracts in a single transaction and that was their composability. And then they discovered code copying, like, you know, we all used to do in the 70s and 80s, where, you know, my example, com uh, uh, Uniswap grabbed the compound governance um, uh, elements, plugged it into their system, called it Uni, and it was a great success, right? And it was basically the compound governance contract used in Uniswap. But the problem is other people like DeForce did the same thing and they lost $25 million because they didn't have all the backdoor knowledge that the priesthood shared behind the scenes. And, you know, and, and, and so... 
while you can get some leverage by copying other people's code, it's really not very maintainable, very extensible. And it, you know, really steps squarely into major problems in the underlying computational model of Ethereum that gets in the way of, of you know, rapid development and development by large numbers of programmers. So to what extent, you know, as... As OGs in the space, as you say, you know, working on these hard problems at scale for a very long time, to what extent do you think that a lot of the design choices, I don't necessarily want to pick on Ethereum, but, let, you know, it is by far um, the blockchain off scale at the moment, you know, are kind of derived from generational naivety. Can we, so, you know, guys like you <laughs> who've been looking at this space for a long time can kind of just see the design principles not scaling, you know, very early on. So the the answer is that's certainly true. Um, you know, I, I, I will. I it's important to note that sometimes things that clearly have scaling limitations can make it so that small uses, small examples, small applications are enough simpler and clearer that that's a way to get the world started, right? H, you know, HTTP was really, really terrible. It had no security. It didn't have any pipelining, all these kinds of things. But man, it was dirt simple and it got the web out there. And then, you know, and we could see at the time all the horrible, horrible limitations that would come from HTTP. And by gosh, people stepped right into those messes. But it was necessary to get the world kickstarted so that HTTPS, so that HTML5, so that JavaScript could end up having a place to ferminate and, you know, and, and grow, right? Germinate and grow, rather. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's, I, I don't want to second guess all the design decisions in Ethereum where at the time we could look at them and indeed our technical lead, uh, Brian Warner, was part of the... Ethereum security review and identified that reentrancy was a serious concurrency bug and would have serious consequences. And by gosh, it's had, you know, billions of dollars of consequences. You know, on the other hand, it it made certain kinds of things really easy to show off. And so maybe it was the right trade-off at the time, even though it had clear scaling limitations. From my perspective, you know, I mean, similarly, Flash used to be all the thing that you used to do for for games on the internet and and you know fancy applications and all that sort of thing. But once JavaScript and HTML5 came out, you know who uses Flash nowadays? Nobody. I mean, there's legacy stuff out there that people still rely on that may use it, but but it's but it it its scaling limitations caused people to move off it once once they had a better alternative. Right. And so, you know, we, we kind of fast forward, we're here today. I don't know, I saw a stat just today, you know, several trillion in transactions happening on Ethereum over the last, um, I don't know, a couple of quarters or I don't know if this year, mm -hmm. I forget now, but a huge amount of transaction volume going, going through that system. Um, similarly, you know, we're now seeing new entrants, be it Solana, obviously it's not the first one. We've had EOS in the past and several others that have been proposed to come and take um, Ethereum's throne. But <laughs> I guess Solana's the latest one, which is supposed to solve for some of the scaling issues of Ethereum. Can you talk about the, the differences in approach between something like Solana and what you're doing at Agoric? Sure. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I think, 
the hardest scaling is programmability. So Solana is, and, and several layer two solutions, they're scaling transaction rates, they're scaling vo volume. Maybe they're, you know, they're improving on latency. I mean, you know, fast finality systems like Tenderman have vastly superior latency as well as scaling. Um, those are all important areas to scale. And they're all ones that, you know, we've had to scale in previous systems to scale up transaction rates on everything from brokerage systems to just simply websites. Our focus is on scaling the programmability, scaling the programmer base and getting from that, you know, thousands of developers up to millions of developers. And, and, and that, that certainly is, to me, the hardest thing to scale, simply because that's something that people, you know, are, aren't good at and that sometimes you bake in the limitations into a system in order for it to be successful that limits its scaling. That's what I was talking about of elements of the, the Ethereum security model might have been great for rolling out early applications, but they certainly mean that you'll hit the wall in terms of how complicated an application you can build or how uh, sophisticated a developer has to be in order to succeed at it. But the, the, the characterization of all these different systems, like Solana to me is the high frequency trading engine. Their real focus is transaction velocity. And they get, as a result, I think, you know, when, when all is said and done, they're getting something like 6,000 requests a sec uh, per second compared to the max that we've seen on, on Tendermint of 4,000 requests a second or the max that we see on ETH, which is 13 requests a second, something like that, right? I don't remember quite what the number is. Uh, but, but, you know, so scaling is great, but they don't have great programmability. That's not part of their priority. And the net result from my perspective is, you know, the world needs a high-frequency trading engine, right? You know, existing brokerages, existing markets have high-frequency trading engines that have you know, maybe a thousand developers that can build that stuff. And that's enough, right? They don't need to expand. They don't need to have the programmability in order to be able to build and maintain high frequency trading engines. But then the rest of the trillions of dollars of the trading world is all implemented in other languages where most applications, you know, a big footprint of them is implemented in JavaScript. And our focus is there is in, in the ability to enable these, the, these, you know, many more developers to build their applications where there may be deep liquidity pools in the moral equivalent of Ethereum. There may be high frequency trading engines that we get to integrate with over interop protocols in the likes of Solana. Um, and obviously plenty of other application specific chains across the cosmos and other connected with uh, chains that can provide application specific behavior. But, but it's really orchestrating all of that for, to be able to deliver apps to customers that is, that is our focus and it's where the big developer footprint comes in. Right. And so could you talk us through some of the primitives that you've been building? So I know DeFi was a big focus, but as we said, you've also been building out some primitives to allow for uh, non-fungible functionality and for those to work in the context of DeFi as well. So could you talk us through some of the key primitives that you've been you've been rolling out and then I guess how they might combine in interesting way? Sure. Yeah. Um, now, back in 2015, I think it was, this was right around the time when Ethereum was first coming out. Our chief scientist, uh, Mark Miller, uh, wrote a paper for financial cryptography showing how to do digital assets, including both fungible and non-fungible digital assets, transactions, smart contracts in JavaScript or in a very JavaScript-like language. I think he had both E and JavaScript. And that resulted in what we call the electronic rights transfer protocol, which is 
a JavaScript, which is an API, which we've rendered in JavaScript, but could be done in other programming languages, for being able to talk about the, you know, the trade and exchange of digital assets, including fungible and non-fungible tokens. So since the beginning, Agoric here has been built around having nice uniform handling of digital assets, whether they're the local fungible staking token currency, um, a, a fungible or non-fungible currency created in the local programming language, um, some uh, token, whether it's fungible or non-fungible, brought across interop protocols. So it's a it, so it's a token that runs on some other network or, or or any of the above. So we just had a a demo at a recent conference, the Masari Mainnet event, where the application from end to end showed you know bringing a fungible token from another chain over to to the Agoric chain using it as collateral in a vault to get a local a local stable currency so that's another fungible token that's a that's a, essentially a local stable coin to be able to spend in the local markets taking that to the local AMM buying another um, other another fungible token that was some volatile asset and then finally going to an NFT application and buying that with the the same stable, stable local currency our uh, stable local currency is called run r u n and it is uh, you know and it is it is primarily focused on being the grease for the economic wheels on our chain but it can be used over the over uh, interop protocols on other chains but so that exercised several pieces where they were reused across local currencies, remote currencies, asynchronously available, and NFTs. You know, so if you have the simple notion of a swap, right, rather than in platforms, you know, like Ethereum or other platforms, where they have to treat the local currencies and the remote currencies or the synthesized smart contract currencies very differently. Here, it's just, you know, I've got some asset and whether that's pegged ETH you know, remoted atoms or the local build BLD staking token, it's the same. I'm going to swap that for, you know, again, pegged ETH or atoms or a concert ticket, which is an NFT, or a position on Uniswap that was brought over Gravity Bridge and brought over IBC over to our chain or what have you. All of those are just digital assets. And the idea of a swap is abstract across all of that. And so that means the same 20 some odd lines of JavaScript works just fine to trade any of those assets with any of the others. And so we then use that to build a bunch of DeFi components, DeFi Legos, where an NFT was just one of those at the, at the beginning of the world. Now there's lots of ways that grows, but we have an auction, which is again perfectly well able to auction off an NFT or auction off, you know, 30 atom or, or 30 build. We have a covered call option, which is, you know, a, a a style of option where I can say, here's an asset, let's say it's a concert ticket, that I will sell to you for 10 quatlus, the right to buy it for a hundred run anytime in the next week. Now, that's a very familiar financial abstraction where I could be having a covered call of Apple shares or Google shares, but because that's just a digital asset in our framework, the same thing will work for financials, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, fungible tokens as works for non-fungible tokens. And it's just, again, uh, you know, I will sell you the right to purchase some particular asset over the next week. And if you, if you purchase it, great. And if you don't, then I get the asset back.
And so we've got, we, we have a you know, whole list of these things and it's growing all the time, exactly like I talked about earlier, where the way that React.js or Node.js or any of those really ramped up the programmability is making it very easy to have these kinds of reusable components. And many of these components, they work just fine, as I said, for NFTs as for, as for fungible tokens. And so we'll be building out additional libraries for, uh, for DeFi. So we've got our AMM. We just rolled out the first version of reusable components, Legos for governance. So I can have a contract that wants, you know, a committee to decide all of the interest parameters for some financial thing. And another contract that wants the same committee structure and governance contract to decide what new NFT to publish, right? It's just a question of the voting instrument to be able to go to the same committee and ask for their vote on two different kinds of things. And, you know, th that's a reusable component. So each, each application doesn't have to build it itself. So, you know, as a cypherpunk, <laughs> where does this all take us, right? So I, I don't know if you noticed, but recently we renamed the podcast from founders of Web3 to the, the Metaverse show the metaverse <laughs> yes. podcast um mm -hmm. so you know where, where does this all sit in in the context of the emergence of the metaverse and and as a cypherpunk you know what is the kind of um mot motivation there what, what do we want to see happen so i think as a cypherpunk the biggest thing well there are two things you know my mantra is always you know one that we we, we had a lot at, at cypherpunks is you know cypherpunks write code right so my goal is to enable people to permission, permissionlessly implement and deploy some new way of cooperating with people they want to cooperate. And it's no one's business what they do. And it's no one's, you know, and, 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 and they shouldn't have to ask for approval. Um, occasionally, they may have to ask for forgiveness, but, but, but they ought to be able to proceed to cooperate in as many ways as they can without it being, uh, without it requiring approval by them, whoever them is. And so that's a big part of what we want to enable. And, you know, the elements to make that easier and safer, I mean, is, is these reusable components. I mean, lots of the ways people cooperate, like just doing a simple swap, you know, is something that I don't need to write from scratch. You know, what kinds of digital assets I want to swap with you may be very different than the kinds of digital assets I want to swap with, with, with Markham, but so I can reuse the code, but you know, the cooperation that I want to engage in and what I want to deploy it to, you know, that's all permissionless. And that's really, that's really powerful. That really enables humans to do what they want to do with as little negative interference and useless interference as possible. So, you know, if we look at where we are now, at least in the US context, and l looking at DeFi and the regulatory noises around DeFi, do you think this is going to come down again, as somebody that's you know, been at the heart of the cypherpunk movement. Do you think this is going to come down to freedom of speech again? So, uh, so the answer is actually, it's a little funny. I think some things will, but, you know, I say I want stuff to be per as permissionless as possible, but at the same time, Agoric, the company and the Agoric employees were working very hard to be as compliant with regs as possible and as cooperative as possible and as open and transparent as we can. So, so, you know, having freedom and 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 having a safe environment are not incompatible. It's something that people need to work towards and 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 cooperate on. There will be people who want to, 
impose their solution on how to help people be safe in a, you know, nanny state sort of way. But there's a lot of people that, you know, they want to make sure that 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 they're helping people be safe, but not by saying how they should behave, but rather by raising the standards by which they should behave. And, you know, it's and 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 so, you know, on the one end, there might be you know, pushing back really hard on freedom of speech uh, 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 pressures or other kinds of, of of mechanisms to make sure we're able to to roll out the kinds of innovations we can think of. And on the others, it's cooperating with the folks that are actually thoughtful about this and that understand that they want to enable innovation. And they're just trying to make sure that these considerations about, you know, economic stability and 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 not taking advantage of people that are less that are not as facile in financial matters while still enabling those people to participate, those are all, you know, you know, we simultaneously want want to be able to do better on all of those fronts, and sometimes they're at odds, and we'll have to balance that. Yeah, I think that's something we can all all subscribe to. Um, well, look, Dean, been fascinating watching the evolution of uh, Agoric, and you know, I I know that there's some really big things coming down the pipeline. Um, what are some watchouts before we kind of head off on the roadmap? Well, we just finished our incentivized testnet and got lots of feedback, which we're now integrating. We will be roll. We will be starting our phased mainnet rollout this quarter. So, you know, mainnet zero is the Cosmos infrastructure layer to get our our network launched and stabilized. But it doesn't have any of the the cool, amazing behavior that will be coming later this year. But definitely keep an eye out for it. For any of the developers out there, it's ready to build on to be to be able in a position to deploy, you know, new, interesting, extensible DeFi and NFT businesses, um, you know, in the coming quarter and, and Q1. So by all means, people should get on Discord and join us. Great. Dean, look, it's great to catch up with you again. And, you know, thank you for your continued commit- commitment to the movement. Thank you so much. And I love the podcast. I was so excited about how excited you were about uh, Markham's podcast. And and we really, really appreciate your support for uh, the entire ecosystem and Agoric especially. Great to be part of it all. Thanks, Dean. Thanks. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.